Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing The Personal MBA by Josh Hoffman, Master the Art of Business. This is a book that ties together a whole bunch of different ideas around business, basically the basics. He brings together all these different ideas and says, here you go, here's the four or 500 things you need to you know, get into business. So what inspired him to write the book was Big Seth Godin, who said in a blog post, it's hard for me to understand why getting an MBA is a better use of time and money than actual experience combined with 30 to 40 different books. And he does package this beautifully, uh, Seth Godin stocks. I remember Seth Godin saying in one of his, his marketing seminars is, an effective strategy is to whatever you're trying to package and sell, you put it up against something that's already in everyone's mind and then you change one attribute that is better than the thing that's in everyone's mind. So what he's done here, he's packaged this book up against an MBA that costs you 150, 200 grand or whatever and said, this is just like that, but you're only spending 25 to 30 bucks for the education. Yeah, exactly. Everyone knows what an MBA is and everyone knows the cost and time involved and he's saying you can pretty much get everything you're going to learn from an MBA and you're going to learn it within this one book. So there's a few problems with business schools today. The first big problem is that in order to do an MBA, especially a a super prestigious one, you pretty much have to mortgage your entire life to pay for the price of admission because they're bloody expensive. The second big problem is what they teach is really worthless, outdated and even outright damaging concepts and practices. So assuming your goal is to build a successful business, what he's saying is MBAs don't uh, really do that. Yeah, he says that they're generally, obviously in order to make the course, they're going off past case studies that are a bit older and he's saying that the things that you're going to learn are probably not the things you need, especially the very start of a business anyway. He says MBAs really typically throw out the dogma of doing everything you can to improve quarterly earnings by share but what that does for business is makes them uh, focus on short-term profits rather than the long-term sustainable things that really uh, make a business uh, run in the long run and be profitable. And the third big problem, he says that doing an MBA definitely does not guarantee you a high-paying job and it also especially doesn't teach you anything about being a skilled manager or a leader. So, mate, I'm, I'm not getting an MBA after hearing those <laughs> ones and especially the next thing. He says... According to a 2011 US News and World Report, the top 15 MBA programs charge about $41,000 to $54,000 per year for tuition. That's a lot of money. That's a hell of a lot of money, man. And that's just the tuition. That doesn't include any living expenses or if you took out a loan to do this, you're obviously going to pay a hell of a lot of interest on that. So he's saying that the eight top business schools cost more than $300,000 to get your MBA once you factor in all of those other expenses as well. That's a whole lot of money you need to really recruit for your career after doing the MBA, which I'm uh, after reading this, I'm not sure if you can uh, get it or if that's the only way to get the mm. the return on investment. He says it's not all doom and gloom. The the big benefit, uh, you need to go past the idea of that you're going to learn a whole bunch of cool shit because that's something you can do anyway without doing an MBA. But what he says the big benefit is, is mainly just having that, I guess, that stamp of approval, having that, you know, fancy name on your resume saying you got a, an MBA from one of the top schools and he says that what it does is gives you better access to Fortune 500 recruiters, you know, like big consulting firms, big accounting firms, big investment banks and the alumni network just by saying that they're, they're thinking, okay, if I'm going to go to the best school to get the best MBA students. So, that's obviously, it's easier for the HR hiring manager to just say, oh, I just picked a, a Harvard MBA rather than doing a, 
an actual interview of you know picking mm. someone on merit. Mate, I reckon you could still do that without a 200 grand MBA. <laughs> you <laughs> could be creative. Could. But anyway, enough of this shit on MBA. So this is a business book. It really goes down into the real basics of what a business is. And he says uh, most MBA programs and business books just assume that people know what a business is. But when you break it down to the extreme basics, what it is is A, it creates or provides something of value that B, that people want or need and C, at a price they're willing to pay in a way that D, satisfies the purchaser's needs and expectations and E, provides the business sufficient revenue to make it worthwhile for the owners to continue operation. Yeah, so if you take away any of these, you're no longer looking at a business. So you need the value creation, customer demand, transactions, value delivery and profit sufficiency. They're the five basic things you need in any business. And then he breaks it down to say, okay, based on these things, here are the skills you need. Like say, for example, for value to be created, you need to understand what people want. So you need market research skills. In order to attract customers, you need marketing skills. In order to close a sale, you need value delivery and sales skills. In order to satisfy customers, you need customer service skills. So these are the, what he's done, he's broken down these five things and he's broken down all the different skills you need and taken all the learnings from different books and he's packaged that into these five parts of the business that are the five chapters that we're going to go through today. That's right. So value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, and finance. So you're going to bolster up your skills and knowledge in all these areas through reading these books. Yes. So the first chapter we're going to go through, value creation. And basically, that's discovering what people need or want and then creating it. So every every successful business creates something of value and the world is full of real opportunities to make people's lives better in, a certain, in, in different kind of ways. So what you need to do is go out there and find out uh, what people need and how to produce and bring them the value. Yeah, the value you can create can take on a whole bunch of different forms, but the main purpose is always the same. And that purpose is to make someone else's life a little bit better. So without this value creation, businesses can't exist and you can't effectively transact with customers if you've got nothing of value to offer them. It's like the iron law of the market, he says. Every business is limited by the size and quality of the market it's trying to serve. So that's just the objective reality of things, independent of what you believe about the value you're creating. It doesn't mean shit to what the iron law of, of the real market really thinks of what you've, what you've got. Yeah, he says the cold, hard, unforgiving truth is if you don't have a large group of people who really want what you have to offer, your chances of a viable business are slim. So now how do we understand what the iron law of the market actually wants. So a few ways you can do it. One is looking at the core human drives to really understand what human beings want and in what ways you can actually go out there and give them some value. Yeah, so there's uh, the typical Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which he talks about the five things people want and other psychologists later broke this down to the ERG theory, existence and then relatedness and then growth. So they're the three things that humans want and need in order to drive their behavior. So part of these drives is a whole bunch of different ones and one of them is the drive to acquire which is kind of obvious but this is physical objects and all the material stuff and even the immaterial things like power and influence and the businesses that are built on this uh, need are retailers, investment brokerages, uh, you know, saying we can make you rich and political consulting companies and so forth. Yeah, a few of the other drives is like the drive to bond and form relationships. So things like restaurants and conferences and, and online dating services, they capitalize on this human desire. We have the drive to learn. 
And this is to satisfy curiosity and businesses include like uh, academic programs, book publishers, uh, training workshops, probably books as well in mm. general. Yeah. Another one is a drive to defend. So, we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our friends and family, our loved ones. So, that includes things like home alarm systems, insurance products, say martial arts training, things like that, lawyers. And then the fifth one is the drive to feel. And this is the desire for new sensory stimuli, uh, you know, like emotional experiences, pleasure, excitement, entertainment, and ant- anticipation. So, this will be restaurants, games, concerts, sporting events, uh, going on a holiday and all these kind of things. Yeah. So, basically, this is what we're looking at. These are what people want and need and basically all successful businesses combine something to do with, you know, more money, more status, more power, more love, more knowledge, more protection, more pleasure, more excitement. Basically, your product needs to boil down to give somebody the idea that they're going to get more of one of those things. One of those big ones what we'll, we'll do a little deep dive on is the idea of status seeking. So, it's a universal phenomenon and neurotypical human beings care intensely about what others think of them. So, we spend a great deal of energy and time just walking around comparing ourselves mm-hmm. to where we sit in the hierarchy, uh, you know, compared to our neighbors, our friends, or our girlfriend's brother, and so forth. <laughs> is that a personal one? <laughs> <laughs> it actually isn't, I swear to God. <laughs> we all, we all want to... Um... specific. <laughs> We all want to feel like we've got more power, more status and as you say, we're always comparing ourselves to, to other people so there's a, a lot of businesses can be built upon the idea that you can give somebody more status in some way. On one hand, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It motivates us to go out there, work really hard and achieve mm. great things. On the other hand, if unchecked, it can lead to absolute disaster and poor decisions like someone will go out and buy a large house, they'll buy a luxury car all on credit and just get into debt that they can't really service all just to put up this big show that they're doing amazing Mm. but in reality, they're cooked. Yeah, exactly. Everyone wants to feel like the big dog so obviously you as a a businessman uh, or a businesswoman can play into that idea and and capitalize on some of that that greed. Yeah, fuck them up. (laughs) Fuck them up. (laughs) The next thing he talks about is the the 10 ways to evaluate a market. So if you've got an, an idea or... You know, you want to target a specific market. He says there's 10 factors that you should look into. And his suggestion is to, for each of these 10 things, rate it on a scale from 0 to 10 and then add them, add them all up. If you're shooting at 75 and above, it's probably a good idea to shoot for. If you're less than 75, probably worth looking for something else that can satisfy more of these 10 things. So, whatever idea you've got, you want them to rate highly in all these different factors. And factors are urgency, how quick they need it, the market size, the pricing potential, like can you actually put a decent price tag on it, the cost of customer acquisition, meaning how much does it cost to get a customer through the door, the cost of value delivery, the uniqueness of the offer, the speed to market, upfront investment, how much does it cost beforehand before you get up and running, uh, the upsell potential to other products they don't need (laughs) and evergreen potential. Yeah, exactly. So, we want... Obviously, most of these things we want to be high. Some of them we want to be low. Like we want low upfront investment. We want high upsell potential, high evergreen potential. So, I'd say go through those 10 different factors and assess your idea, assess the market, see if it's something worth getting into or perhaps it's time to look for a different idea that better satisfies these 10 things. He says if you're assessing a market and say if you've got two markets, one's a brand new, as we'd say, you know, like a blue ocean where no one else is there or you've got another market where there are some competitors there, 
he thinks that the best one to choose is the one with competition and mm. competition is actually one of your friends. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit counterintuitive or get, flies in the face of some of the other books that we've done that talk about, you know, you want to be in your own category, you want to be uh, in the blue ocean. But what he's saying is that there are ben- uh, competition has hidden benefits in that if there's already businesses in that area, it means that there's some market demand. So it's basically like they've already tested the market for you. If there's nobody currently in that market, perhaps it's you know it's a blue ocean that no one's tried before, but also perhaps it's not a viable market that you should steer clear of. So it takes a lot of time and energy and effort and money to actually go out and then do the market research to really find out if the market's actually there. So instead, you can divert those resources to really develop your offer um, to be better than mm. the, the competitors in the first place. Yeah, he says that one way to really test it out is you should be a customer of one of these competitors. So if you've got an idea and someone else is already doing it, be a customer and really analyze what they're doing, how they're doing it, and then simply work out how can you do it better. So another way to understand if you're providing value and evaluating the market is to have a look at what he calls hassle premium. And people are almost always willing to pay for things that they believe are too much pain to take care of themselves. Yeah, there's uh, the example he gives is you can buy a pool cleaning kit for 50 bucks or you can pay someone else 100 bucks to come and clean your pool for you. And you're probably more likely going to do that. I was actually thinking today I need to get my car cleaned. Mm. I could whip the vacuum out or I could go and pay 30 bucks to take it to the car cleaner. Yeah, I've got a cleaner coming at uh, it's 8.30 in yeah. the morning now. They're coming at midday. <laughs> that, that's it, man. It's that hassle premium. Shout out to Madeline. Some, <laughs> sometimes we just don't want to do shit and we'd rather just pay extra pay to someone else as well. That's that hassle premium. So in this chapter, he talks about what's the effective, most effective way to test uh, the market and see if you've actually got a viable business in the first place. Yeah, and something we've talked about a lot is you know this idea of the MVP, the minimum viable product. Whenever we've got an idea, we really don't know if it's going to work or not, so we need to test it out. And he says a way to test it out is a prototype. So it's something uh, small that you can get out to market and test. And this sort of flies in the face of the classic MBA product development model. So he says that what he learned when he was doing his MBA is, you know, it's all about secrecy and mystique. Don't tell anybody about this offer. Develop it in private. Make sure anyone you tell, they sign a non-disclosure agreement, raise millions of dollars in venture capital, spend years building it, and then eventually in some massive launch, unveil it to the whole world and everyone's going to think, oh, this is amazing and everyone's mm. going to buy it. Yeah. So that's sort of the, the MBA way to do it is spend millions and spend years and eventually everyone's just going to love it. But yeah. It's probably not, not going to work. No, nah, it won't. As we discovered at the start of this episode, people who do MBAs are just a bunch of dickheads. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know shit. So yeah, in, <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard. But uh, in building the prototype, the whole point of it is, as you said, get it out early. It doesn't need to be perfect. But the whole idea is to get feedback from real potential mm. customers that you, who you're looking to serve. And obviously, based on that feedback, then you iterate. Then you do the next thing and make a small tweak and make it better. So rather than thinking you already know the perfect idea and build a massive thing, you build something small and tweak it as you go and keep building and keep building based on real-world feedback, not just your own personal assumptions. So this prototype or the MVP you said, the idea is to really test critical assumptions that are, that are in your business. So say, for example, if you're a gym looking to open in a new neighborhood, um, you know, you might have early expenses like the, the, the rent might cost 10 grand per month, salaries might cost $12,000 per month, you might have upfront equipment of $5,000 and so forth. So with all that, you might realize that you need, all right, we need... 200 customers paying uh, 100 bucks a month to make this business viable. 
in that is baked a whole lot of critical assumptions that you're probably best off testing before you go out and you sign that 12-month lease and then you spend all the equipment in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So we, we've got these assumptions that there's going to be um, 200 people that are going to pay 100 bucks a month and we're assuming that we can get that many customers. But then say one risk might be, okay, people aren't going to pay 100 bucks a month but actually more people will join up if we charge them 75 bucks a month. But then the thing is now that you know, if you drop from 100 to 75 rather than needing 200 people, you need 300 people in order to cover your costs. And so that's one of your assumptions is already blown out a little bit. So if you've done all these numbers and then you realize actually we need to tweak something, then perhaps you've, uh, you, you're going to fail. So you obviously want to test these all these assumptions in any way you can. One interesting way he says you can do it is the idea of shadow testing. And he says this is the best way to validate uh, critical assumptions directly because going through the whole process of, of building the business in the first place is just, just a little bit too much. So it's the process of selling an offer before it actually exists. So you literally charge them, but you don't take their money, but you get them to the point where they have to put their credit card details through the computer and so forth. And there are services out there that actually allow you to do this. So you know there are actual uh, potential customers out there looking to actually spend real hard money. And then once you realize there's enough volume going through a website or so forth, putting down their money, you can get a gauge of how many numbers are willing to pay this. So then right then you can pull the trigger and say, all right, we're on, we're building a a gym, baby. Yeah. And don't get uh, overconfident by say testing and market research uh, where people just say that they will do something because I I heard in a podcast recently, uh, actually, I think it was Seth Godin was talking about it on the moment. He was saying that there was a, a study where people were doing market research, they were testing this new product. It was like a, a clock radio or something. And all the people said, yeah, we'd be willing to pay $80 to buy this clock radio or $90 to buy this clock radio. Everyone said they'd be willing to pay $80, $90, $100 to buy it. And then at the very end, they were given 50 bucks. And they said, okay, you've got an option. You can keep the 50 bucks, or we'll give you this clock radio that you said you'd spend $80 to buy instead. So obviously you'd think, oh, I'll take the radio. It's worth a lot more than 50 bucks. Not a single person did. Ah. Even, even though they said, yeah, we'd be willing to buy it, they'd rather just take the cash. Everyone's just extremely <laughs> nice. Don't have dark side, do they, mate? <laughs> Get a dark side in. So basically, he's saying that don't. if you like ask 20 friends and they'll say, yeah, I'd definitely buy it. Oh, yeah, man. Then uh, don't, don't rely on that. A different way to do it is uh, Fitbit. He gives the example that they made a full website that had a pictures and a description of what Fitbit's going to be. This has gone back like 10 years. And people put in their details, their address, their credit card info. Fitbit didn't charge them. They just said, we need to make sure we've got enough customers first. And once they had enough, that's when they started charging people. So it's a a much better way if you've actually got the ability to take people's money rather than them just saying, yeah, I'd be interested in buying that. So that's chapter one. It's all about value creation. Now, chapter two is all about marketing. So offering value isn't merely enough. If no one knows or even cares about what you have to offer, it doesn't matter how much amazing value you create. Mm, exactly, man. And the first big rule of marketing is attention. Obviously, nobody's going to know what you're offering until you can get their attention in order to start marketing and selling to them. When it comes to business, some attention isn't worth having. I mean, you can run around the street in a pink tutu with your business name on your tattooed on your chest, but that doesn't mean no one's going to go out and buy your product. So that goes uh, a little bit against you know, the, the, all, the, the idea that all publicity is good publicity. That's not really true. Yeah, you want to obviously get the right sort of attention from the right sort of people. Now, once you're getting people's attention, uh, he says that a good way to 
to talk about your offer is by not saying you know the 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 features of what it offers but rather talking about the end result so talking about what you're going to get at the end so that's what you need to be thinking about rather than just you know you've got the fitbit that tracks your steps and your heart rate that would be obviously the features of it but you need to be thinking about what's the end result people want and the end result is probably that feeling of being fitter and healthier and in the case of uh And in the case of business books, he says a lot of people who go out there and read a whole bunch of business books and they do online courses and so forth, they're really, in reality, not really even interested in business, <laughs> which is a bit of a slap <laughs> in the face. He says what they're interested in is the idea of the hope of a prosperous and abundant future. Mm. So, it's probably a, a bit of a slap in the face for us too and, and all the listeners <laughs> that are, you know, you, you buy, when you buy a business book sometimes, you're buying that... You, are, you might have a more hopeful future as opposed to being someone who's ready to get down and dirty and do what it takes to actually run a successful business. I'd say there's a little bit of truth in that. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. But that's, a, that's the important thing. Obviously, you're not going to do... If you're selling a business book, you're not going to say, hey, buy this book. It's going to give you hope that you're going to have a better future. But you need to keep in mind that's what the end result is. That's what people are actually buying. And so you frame your marketing through that. Obviously, don't spell it out clearly to them, but that's how you talk about it rather than just saying... Buy this business book, it's going to teach you ABC. Another thing he says when it comes to marketing is, which is kind of counterintuitive, that sometimes you're best off just turning away some customers. Mm. Sometimes it can take a lot of time and energy and sometimes money to attract a prospect and start to market to them. But not every lead is a good lead. Sometimes it's better just turn away these things. And this is a process he calls qualification. So if there's things that you can build into your process that will really assess if someone is likely to buy or not, it's really going to help because it's better to have less prospects that are more likely to buy rather than having a whole bunch of prospects that are probably unlikely to buy. Yeah, there's some there's some businesses out there that I, I spend money for every now and then where I'm definitely a bad customer. <laughs> Look, when it comes to, uh, you know, in Australia, we've got U-Foods, I don't know about overseas, but, you know, I only take away their, their special offers they send mm. by email. And same when it comes to credit cards. The only time I use the credit card is to get the 100,000 free bonus points for the first month and then I cut up the credit card. So, there are some <laughs> business offers out there where they're actually making a loss on me as a customer. So, they really should cut me, <laughs> but they haven't read the personal MBA. <laughs> exactly. Now, there's a, now that we've sort of got people's attention and we've started framing our marketing messages, there's some th- certain things that we can do to make people want it. So, one big one he talks about is, is visualization. So he talks about that there's, the typical example is buying a car. As soon as you walk onto the car lot, the car salesman wants to sell you a car and the best way to do that is to give you a test drive. So that's them making you visualize what it's going to be like to drive this car around, to pull into your driveway and so your neighbor can see this fancy new car you've got. Rather than just you know listing all the benefits of this car, he's actually visualizing, like making you visualize it so you can imagine what it's going to be like. Yeah, you want them to visualize what their life will be like after they take what your product is. So again, you know, if you go back to our gym example, you might walk them through the gym and they'll see a whole bunch of fit people working out with big abs and arms and and legs and and so forth. So then they'll uh, visualize themselves as them and then they're more likely to purchase the uh, the, the gym membership. Another one is uh, the puppy dog clothes. Like uh, it's a bit of a stereotypical thing is saying if you take this puppy home, if you don't like it, you can bring it back. Almost no one brings it back. Um, 
so yeah. Is that how you got Charlie? <laughs> nah, just I was already pre pre sold. <laughs> Charlie was a lock. Um, another one he talks about is framing. So based on you know thinking fast and slow, talking about loss aversion, the way we frame our offer is very important. And he's got an example here. So in a study, participants were given two options. Treat there were six hundred sick people. Treatment A would save two hundred lives. Treatment B has a thirty three percent chance of saving everyone and a 66% chance of saving no one. So in that case, 72% of people selected treatment A, where 200 people were guaranteed to be saved. Now, if you flipped it around, treatment C resulted in 400 deaths. So rather than 200 people saved, 400 deaths. Treatment D had a 33% chance that no one would die, and a 66% chance that all 600 would die. So it's the exact same numbers, but rather than talking about saving lives, he talked about this is how many people are going to die. In that case, it completely flipped around and an overwhelming majority, 78% of people, selected the, the chance that they could save everybody. So just that loss aversion thinking we're much more affected by losing something than gaining something is important in how you frame your offer. Yeah, man, framing is a natural part of communication. Some sort, some sort of compression of the facts or any message is inevitable. So, understanding how to frame it in mm. a way that you want uh, and, and so you're more likely to get the result you want is uh, absolutely huge and avoid the Machiavellian manipulation wherever possible, but a little bit sinister. Yeah. <laughs> have to. Mate, uh, another big one is free. So, remember we said that the most important thing in marketing is attention. A good way to quickly get attention is to give something for free. A oh, quick side note, we've got a, um, our free download, the top 50 best books of all time, whatyouallearn.com slash top 50. It's completely free. Free. <laughs> free. Well, I think I just chopped someone's ear off then. Free. So, yeah, everyone loves something for nothing, especially all you guys so, and girls. <laughs> so, go out and get this shit for nothing. <laughs> You've probably seen free samples of things like food in a supermarket. Uh, a good percentage of free customers end up becoming paying customers. So, you could always remember attention alone doesn't pay the bills. So, free is a good way of getting attention, but then you need something something good that gets paying customers through the door to really fund your whole enterprise. Yeah. And then a fourth big thing is permission. So, obviously, selling to people who actually want to be sold to is much better than selling to someone who's never heard of you. So, building some kind of permission asset where people allow you to speak to them is definitely an effective marketing technique rather than just scattergun with a billboard in the middle of the city. Yeah. So, if you get two different emails, one email which you didn't really ask for at all comes through and it's just a spammy kind of thing, you do whatever you can or you go out of your way to delete that and uh, uh, make sure you get no more emails from that person. But if you actually go out there and sign up for someone's email list, when you get the email They're both the same thing in terms of an email. One, you've actually given permission for and you're much more likely to to go for that. That's why email list is so valuable to uh, to businesses. That's it. Part three is sales. So, obviously, sales is the the big part of it. Marketing is setting up that people want it, but sales is where, you know, people, someone actually pulls out their wallet and says, yes, I'm going to take one of these. Here's my money. So, yeah, every single business ultimately sells what it has to offer and it's something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but it's... Uh, the best businesses in the world earn the trust of their prospects first and then help them understand why the offer is worth them paying for. Yeah, a couple of things at the very start of this sales process that you need. One is trust. So, obviously, the customer has to trust this business that it's a reputable. They're not just going to take your money and run away without giving you the product. And the other one is common ground. So, there needs to be some kind of overlapping of interests where it's a win-win situation. Obviously, if 
if the customer thinks they're just going to give their money and what they get back is not worth it, there's no common ground there. There's no sale going to occur. Yeah, a bit of a crossover with getting to yes in terms of negotiation. If you can think of your interests, think of their interests and see where it meets and overlaps, then uh, you'll both end up having a, a good deal. Mm. I really like this uh, framework that he gives here that there are three universal currencies. So whenever we're trading, whenever we're, you know, obviously we're selling something, the customer's buying something, there's three currencies here. One is resources. So that's the tangible things like money or gold or oil, but obviously the resources like the product, something you can give them to hold in their hand. The second type is time. So obviously, say as an employee, you're trading time for money. So time is obviously a, a universal currency that everybody's got a certain amount of. And an interesting one that probably we don't think about too much is flexibility. So it's pretty underrated, but flexibility is one of the three big currencies along with time and resources. Flexibility is huge. So when you become a salaried employee and you're contracted to a business, it's not just a straightforward transaction of your effort and time. It's also giving you giving up your flexibility. I mean, you could... You need to be in the office every day for a certain amount of time. You're giving up all your autonomy and control over your life when you become a salaried employee. And, you know, again, some smart businesses might see that and then they, in their negotiations, might offer a little bit of flexibility back and let them have that little bit of control over how they manage their time in, in their week uh, to get the job done. Yeah, very nice. It's a good one that I think probably goes definitely underrated, under, underthought of. People don't think of flexibility that much. The next big one is persuasion resistance. So obviously, sometimes it's hard to sell to people. It's a bit uncomfortable because people are resistant to being persuaded. They like, you know, like laws of human nature, everyone thinks they're acting out of free will. So they want to make the decision for themselves. They don't like to feel like they're being sold to. They don't like to feel like they're being persuaded because it makes them feel like they're no longer acting out of free will and independent thought. So to avoid being someone who is uh, seen as a manipulative type, you need to really see yourself in as, as an assistant buyer. So you're on the side of the buyer on their side being kind of the guide on their hero's journey to really help them go out and find what they're looking for and uh, you know, and that means you're also saying that, that understand where the negatives of your product are and they can't help them or where it can help them. Yeah, nice. A big one he talks about is like desperation. If the customer sniffs any scent of desperation, it's an immediate turnoff that it feels like they're trying too hard which means that there could be some indication that what they're buying isn't actually worth it. If you're so desperate to make the sale, it's because nobody else is buying it. Again, I really love this analogy of dating as well. It's, it's very mm. similar. So if you're a boy at a girl or a girl at a bar uh, looking to attract the opposite sex, if you go or up the to same them, sex. or the same sex, of course, if you go up to them and, um, and are fumbling and you're really, and really nervous and you're, you're desperate and they can just wreak the desperation in your eyes that you haven't yeah. had sex in two years, <laughs> There's no way they're going to go back with you that night, yeah, exactly. are they? is there? But <laughs> if you go up all confident saying, all right, I've been, you know, six out of seven <laughs> last nights, firing on, I'm on fire, then, you know, they can decide, see the confidence and know you've got a lot of value to Ooh, offer yeah. them that night. <laughs> Most definitely. The, the final big section on sales, which I, I thought was actually was phenomenal, man, was the barriers to purchase. And he says that, you know, in sales, Customers, if they don't buy, they're going to be. There's five common objections that you can boil any objection down to one of these five things. So the first one is that uh, it just it costs too much, and so in order to counteract that, 
remembering that loss aversion is so good, obviously they're worried about how much money they're going to lose. So instead, we need to reframe our offer. So obviously, our offer wasn't framed enough that they're, they're going to feel like they're going to lose more in money than they're going to gain in benefit out of your product. Another thing the customer might or the potential customer might say is, oh, it's not going to work or it's not going to work for me. Mm. And the best way to get over this objection is via social proof. So just by showing them that there's customers just like them that it's already working for, mm. they'll trust you enough to know that you can actually deliver on the value that you're promising. Yeah, exactly. That's why things like testimonials and referrals are so powerful. The fourth and fifth common objections are I can't, uh, uh, I can wait, or it's too difficult. So in those scenarios, the best way to overcome those is by effectively educating their prospects. So by saying I can wait. They obviously don't think that the problem they have is big enough, hence they don't need your solution. So you need to educate them into what the problem is, what your solution is and show them the way that this is definitely something you can't wait for. So there are three big ones and now as we... um, Now the fourth one, it's all about value delivery. So every successful business actually delivers what it promises its customers and this involves everything necessary to ensure that the paying customer is by the end a very happy customer. Mm. There's a few things that fall into this is one is the expectation effect. So, Publilius Cyrus, big quote, he says that uh, never promise more than you can perform. So, you don't want to overpromise, and then your customer is expecting something massive and then you under deliver. That's going to be bad. They're probably not going to look at the objective value of what it's got, but they're really going to compare you, the value they receive to the value they're expecting based on what you promise them. So, the flip side of that is you can actually over. Uh, exceed their expectations and give them a little bonus or a little bit of unexpected gift in there. Yeah, exactly. You, if you undersell it and then people probably aren't going to buy it. So, you need to promise high and then deliver even higher. Another important thing uh, which is quite similar is predictability. So, they don't want unexpected surprises with their product. What they their expectation is they want that delivered and as you said, a little bit more. Yeah, he talks about Coke in that say even if like point. of the Cokes that you drunk were a little bit sour and there were no no, um, bubbles in it. Even that small amount of unpredictability is probably enough for people to not want to buy Coke so much, which is probably a good thing, but you could apply that to any other other product. So, you want uniformity, you want consistency, and you want reliability with your predictability. It's a bit of a wrap. (laughs) And another... Should we go into finance? Yeah. So that's number four, which was value delivery. Number five is finance. So obviously, we've done all this value del- uh, this value creation, marketing, sales. We've delivered it. Now we need to make sure we're actually making enough money to be actually keep this enterprise running. Yeah, it's probably something that you don't think about as much as marketing and sales and value creation. It's a bit boring. We were about to yeah. chop it from the episode, <laughs> but then we thought we'll chuck it in. It's certainly important, though, that's for sure. And one important thing, especially at the, the start of a, of a new business, is this idea of sufficiency. And Paul Graham, master investor uh, from Y Combinator, he says that there's, uh, he calls it ramen profitable. So if you're making enough money to cover your costs and then you've got a little bit extra to buy some two minute noodles, then that's sufficiency. That's a good initial goal to get through because you know from there, from there, you know you're not going under. Yeah, exactly. If you can't even buy two-minute noodles and you're probably not sufficient and that's probably you're on the way down. You're probably cooked. Yeah. So, there's four different ways to increase revenue uh, and increase the profitability of your whole business. The first thing you can do is increase the number of overall customers served and an important metric to look at when increasing this is the allowable acquisition costs. 
So this is the idea of how much it costs to get a customer through the door, but then at the same time, how much value does that customer offer you over the lifetime of that customer? So if you look at something like this, you might have a subscription service where you actually might run at a loss to get them mm. through the door. So you something like Uber, they'll offer you $20 off your first you know, few rides or something like that. So Uber are probably running at a loss at the start because they're paying the drivers as well as giving you the free ride and all the overheads to get you there. But over the lifetime, they know an Uber customer, they're going to probably do it every weekend for years and they're going to make a killing off them. Yeah, it's important to know that metric of the lifetime value of a customer, so how much you're going to get out of them over the lifetime so that you know how much you can effectively spend in order to get them through the door. I know that Amazon, uh, they talk, I heard in a podcast as well, that Amazon at the very start, they're willing to spend $37 in advertising in order to get someone as a customer because they knew that once they bought once, if they keep coming back, they're going to well and truly make that $37 back. Another thing you can do is increase the average size of each transaction just by selling more. Mm, yeah, so selling more to each customer. And the third thing is to increase the frequency of transactions. So rather than someone buying three times a year, if they buy four times a year, then there's more revenue, obviously. And the fourth thing is you can obviously raise your prices. And this is really dependent on how much pricing power you have. There are some products out there that you just simply can't really raise the, the price of because at a certain point, the customers just aren't willing to pay. So, so if you look at a company like Apple quite recently, a lot of people are so attached to the Apple brand and the Apple products that they're able to really raise mm-hmm. their prices and people are going to still buy it. And this is exactly what Apple have done. But at the same time, it's to a point. Uh, Apple, they to in, in some people's minds, they're probably going to step too far in not improving the value they're giving by just increasing the, the, the price that people are paying. Yeah, I think that's why that, that's the fourth option. Obviously, it's better to increase the customers or the transaction value or the frequency first and then as a final resort is raise your prices. Another big finance section he talks about is, is opportunity cost. So whenever you're spending uh, money but also time and energy, whatever you're spending it on, you've got to also realize that there is a cost, the opportunity cost of not spending it on something else. So if you go out there and start a whole new brand new business and you work out how much you can earn off that, you also need to bring in the opportunity cost of you leaving, say, your $50,000 a year job. So you add that into the equation on the negative side, uh, but also over a long time frame to really make out what the best decision for you might be. Yeah. The next uh, finance item is the time value of money. So a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. So the time value of money is saying that, you know, things like inflation and also the opportunity cost of investing that over time, it's more valuable to have money now rather than money later. And then things like low interest rates really amplify that factor, uh, knowing that the the value of money isn't going to be more in five years' time. It's going to be quite similar to what it is today. And that's the whole idea of zero interest rates. And if you look at from a a real perspective when it's less than inflation, then you're really better off having the money now. And this is how uh, you know central banks around the world really manipulate markets. And leading from that, quite similarly, is this whole idea of leverage. And this is the idea where if you borrow a whole bunch of money, it magnifies the potential gains, but also at the same time, the potential losses also. Yeah. So if you imagine, say if you've got $100,000 and you buy $100,000 worth of stock, there's no leverage there because you've just bought it with cash. If it goes up 10% to 110, you've made $10,000. If you then say take that $100,000 cash and get, you know, a loan, so you get then you say so you get a $400,000 loan and you buy a $500,000 property. So you're leveraged up here because you've got your own cash 
plus you've got 400k in your loan. If it goes up 10% to 550, you've now made five times as much. So you've made $50,000 of profit. But of course, because the potential gains are magnified, the losses are also magnified. So if your stocks you buy go down 10%, you lose 10K. If that property goes down 10%, you're losing 50K. So you're losing half of your cash. So leverage is powerful, but you also got to be careful because the gains are magnified, but the losses are also magnified. Little shout out there to Matt from the online discussion forum who gave me that example and I ripped it directly. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that where you got that one from? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, was, I was going the one off the book and it's, I was, my brain was isn't as quick as yours with keeping up with numbers. <laughs> so that's it, man. That's, that's the whole book is the five different parts of the business. And there's a whole bunch more after this. So we did the first 40% of the book and did our own little narrative fallacy for what yeah. we thought was important. <laughs> yeah, uh, the f- this, this first third of the book that we did here was the, the business side. He also talks about other important things like the human and emotional side of business and also the system side of business. But I think in terms of the basics, the, the business, five parts of the business that we talked about were probably the most important for getting started. Yes, yeah, so it's the basics, value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, finance. So if you're thinking of getting an MBA, I definitely recommend that you don't after reading this. Just go. I recommend you read this book and then read this book and spend a hundred grand on actually doing shit, Mm. um, trying to run your own profitable business and so forth. You're you're definitely going to get a lot more learnings, and as a bonus, you might actually end up with a profitable business uh, by the end of the the three year hundred grand investment. Exactly. 